Hello and welcome to the Super Secret Tech Podcast. This is episode number seven. We are usually a weekly podcast devoted to Magic the Gathering news, opinions, and insights with an eternal state of mind. I am your host, Brooks, joined by my co-hosts, Adam, Topher, and Peter. First off, I want to say uh, sorry for not putting out an episode last week. I was pretty busy with the GP last weekend, and we tried to record an episode, and it just was not working. So we had to revisit it and revamp it, and we're back today to give you the good content as opposed to the crappy stuff. In today's show, we're going to downplay Topher's tremendous win in the Legacy Challenge and go deep into the brewing process. And don't forget, at the end of each episode, we'll be asking you, the audience, a trivia question. Any correct answers for the trivia question we receive will be entered into a drawing for a draft set of the most recent sets, Aethervolt and Kaladesh. But first, let's talk about our weeks in Magic. So Topher won the Legacy Challenge, for those of you unfamiliar with that. The rest of us are scrubs. Topher, want to give us a quick redux of your triumphant victory? Sure. Uh, lost run round in Swiss. The Mirror, which I then proceeded to beat that dude again in the finals. Not again, beat him first time. Only thing really of note was that uh, the Predict build was definitely the right build to be playing, as evidenced by the top eight being all Predict Miracles. And just my actual personal mashups which allowed me to mow over all the bug and delver I ran into. And frankly, at this point, if you don't have predict in the mirror, you're going to lose. But when I did have to go through three mirror matches in the top eight, I was able to get there thanks to my cyborg mentors. And obviously, mentor is a good card, but specifically in the mirror, it's fantastic. It's basically the mirror breaker. And it is definitely the reason I won. I did not. I think in all four mirror matches I've played, I think they each time they had more predicts, snapcasters, power blasts than me, but I had mentors and they did not have answers, so I still won. So Don't you me. remember the uh, humble times when the mirror breaker was a copy of Cavern of Souls and a Karanos or a Venter? I tried to play I played Legends when I that lasted a couple months. And then I played it briefly, I want to say maybe a year and a half ago now, and I quickly dropped that when I stopped being able to beat Adam with consistency. Uh, lost him a few times our weekly legacy and said it was unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as an Elves player, I love I love seeing uh, Caracas and Vencer lock because it's just a little slower than what we're trying to do. A little too slow, not quite efficient enough. Elves is doing a little bit too many things to turn for the Vencer lock to be... Good enough. Shit, man, I play Punishing Fire Grove of the Burn Willows, and that's still a little too slow for L sometimes. <laughs> I've played against this one L player online, Lady Edith, and she's got, and like, I, 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 I'm maybe like 50 50 against her. It's like, if an L player really wants to, uh, really wants to ha beat you, like, they, I imagine she gives some things up to have the cyborg card she has against Miracles, but. Certainly is good for her when she has them. So I think Jeff Goldblum said it best. Uh, life uh, find, finds a way. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've toyed with a few elves brews that bring the win percentage <coughs> against miracles to around 50%. But when it comes to other decks, that's where the problem is. Speaking uh, of uh, elves fighting some miracles, what about that EE6 top eight? Oh, yeah. So our top eight breakdown um, was won by um, Anna Rangdaz on Miracles. Um, Anna Rangdaz. <laughs> I've corrected you on how to pronounce his name like <laughs> 10 times now. <laughs> 10 times just on this show. 
Very true. Um, so two miracles in the top eight. Uh, death and oh, not taxes. Even, not even going to go for the attempted uh, repronouncing it? <laughs> it's, funnier, it's funnier already, when he does it wrong intentionally. <laughs> I already forgot what Tover said. Um, uh, so two miracles decks, uh, death and taxes, elves, bug alurin, ant, and two four-color control lists. The first two places were uh, miracles, um, and the more predicts one. Pretty consistent across the board that miracles with predict is the optimal build. It's suitable to handle all these controlling style decks that are coming up. And if the meta shifts in one way or another, Miracles really has the ability to adapt. You know, We see more bug decks, they have more Pyroblast. We see more Storm, they play Fluster Storm. We see more you know, fair decks, we see other solutions. Their Miracles has the ability to adapt better than anybody else. And by adapting, the Predicts has the ability to not only find the answers, but outdraw the grinding matches as well. Who would have thought drawing cards was the mirror breaker? Uh, also, Miracles deck running Spy Network. By Spy Network, you mean Thopter Spy Network? No. Uh, spy Network. Spy Network. Single Did he blue fucking stutter? He didn't fucking stutter. He doesn't <laughs> can- I don't think it cantrips. I had to look yeah, that no. up. But... You look at the top four cards of your deck and rearrange them. You fate seal your opponent and you look at my hand. The- does he get to fate seal you? I thought he just got to look at the top card. Oh, no, he looks at it. He looks at the top card of your library and your hand and any face-down cards, and then he yeah. gets to index himself, I think. Yeah. yeah. Index for four. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's card disadvantage, but hey, you... But let me <laughs> you ask what's you going this, on. I mean, that seems fun and all, but why not Thopter Spy Network and Miracles? I mean, you've got tops. <laughs> that was... That was my quote when um, when I was talking to Topher about it. I was like, yeah, I think it's the second best card with the words Spy Network in it. <laughs> yeah, second so best bad. of two. Yeah, and they, but he like had the mentor out when he played it one game, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> so I lost. I mean, literally any non-creature spell when there's a mentor out is pretty good last time I checked. It was all right. So then he snapcaster Spy Network for the next turn. <laughs> no <fucking> value. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. So, credit, uh, so yeah. credit to this guy for willing to experiment. Do you My have any experimentation? Is moving the mountain back to the main board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you guys have any opinions on the top eight of EE six? You know, it looks I, pretty pretty nice. Like it's a clean snapshot. Two miracles, a DNT, an elves, Bugalorin, four color ant. It seems like as close to healthy as you can get. It is definitely I mean, healthy. In terms of like judging it based on what decks are part of it, yeah, it seems if a Delver was there, you know, that'd be cool. But you know, I can't, you can't really complain. I mean, I think the event was a little under two hundred people. I want to say, or it was a little. Yeah, it was still, cool. it was still a twenty k event. That EV is like, I honestly didn't, I honestly had to think that one of those numbers was wrong, but I guess not. Just people yeah. walk in and make money. I know I I didn't hear about it until about three weeks ago. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't so. hear about it until I turned on Twitch and saw it was streaming. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? I mean, that's I'm a nine-hour right. drive. I could have made that. Yeah, no, totally. The, the, I the would have I mean, I, I gone down to it, but uh, yeah. The, the day before I was telling you, Jarvis, you was on your, your main deck for it. So I know you heard about it. You didn't tell me it was 4EE. You just said randomly that Jarvis, you was playing your main deck. I'm like, what are you? Hmm. All right. Whatever. When I turned on Twitch and I saw that stream, I was surprised to see that there was an EE. 
It's got to be a lot better than the uh, Grand Prix I went to over the weekend, which was standard, in which the top eight consisted of six Mardu Ballista decks, one nice. Dynavolt Tower deck, and one other deck that... Oh, yeah, and then a Jund uh, Aggro deck, which is basically like Mardu. That's not really much to right say. There, I, feel, I feel like I don't have the right to say anything <laughs> about standards since I don't... I can I can be as judgmental as anybody, but I okay. Let me ask Christopher. <laughs> okay, I, imagine there's a, a, a legacy top eight that is six can... miracles decks, and then one of the decks is an Esper deck that happens to also play all the miracles yeah. cards, but also black. And then there is one storm deck, and that's the top eight of this oh, weekend. Storm players gonna be a fucking. Have PTSD after that top eight. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, he just probably dies in the first round, and that's that's that. Dude, no, he's gonna be the champion. He's gonna be the dark horse. People are gonna be like fuck this Esper Miracles player. He wants Storm to win. Yeah, no, obviously that doesn't sound good. Um, but I don't. I feel <laughs> blindly banned bad. cards. I, I I feel bad for like. Okay, I don't feel bad for them because their jobs are design magic cards. But I do respect the challenge that. Wizards faces designing a balanced standard, especially given what play, players say they want. I mean, people, I personally hated Theros, and I hated it because I just felt like the cards themselves were boring to play with. And then they make cons. Cons had a lot of fun cards to play with, but it became freaking four color mid range value town. And I mean, that's kind of what you have to expect when you print good magic cards that people are going to play them and if you're in standard there's only so much room for good magic cards so people are going to play the best cards in standard i love the flavor of it wizards you know wizards heard people complaints about theros and admittedly cons was probably well in development before people complained about theros but you've seen the trend over the last couple years there's printing i mean it's been gone for a long time power creep but specifically the last couple years in the context of standard it's been dominated by just the best deck you know, the best good stuff deck, basically. I mean, at least the dominant decks in standard right now do kind of... They don't seem to be the just windmill slam your top deck sort of decks. Mm -hmm. There is a little bit of counterplay going on, even if, you know, I did not play during Cobblade, but if it's... That's the, you know... People always say, well, at least Cobblade itself was a skill-intensive deck. So, I mean, there you go. There's your sort of lining here. I think, yeah, I mean, we're near the end of a standard rotation... When it gets to that point, people tend to know what the best decks are. We there are a lot of people trying to find the best standard deck, at least in comparison to Legacy, and the card pool is much smaller. It does it does seem like um, you're you're gonna find the best deck, and I think they did. Speaking of uh, of the weekend, though, let me give you guys a quick redux of of standard, and it kind of like it expresses the, the the general feeling of standard to me. I ended up playing a four-color Sahili deck this weekend, and I'm going over my match notes here. And all the matches that I lost were to, like, double mulligan on the play. Um, and all the ones that I won were ones where I didn't have to mulligan. Like, and that just pretty much summarizes my feelings on standard. You know, I played eight rounds of this GP and then was like, nope, I'm done with this shit. 5-3 uh, is... Not going to be worth anything to me. I don't want to play day two. This sounds like variance based magic to me. <laughs> I mean, there's also the, the probably the most salt inducing one was the match against Mardu, where over two games against him, he drew six unlicensed disintegrations. That's why you play them. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. 
Now you said uh, the match against Mardu. You mean? Do you mean one of six rounds versus Mardu? Wow! How did you know? Because I actually <laughs> played six rounds against Mardu. That is one hundred percent correct. There. One of the things that I don't like about this standard specifically is from the um, admittedly limited matches that I've watched of you know Grand Prix top eights and the uh, MOCS. A decent amount of the mirrors, and there were a lot of mirrors uh, in Mardu. A lot of them seemed to be based on, oh, well, that player, he hit double white on turn four and cast Gideon, and the other player had to play a tap play in that turn or something like that. That's Um, another complaint that I've uh, heard the the pros make about this is this format – I've read uh, articles by multiple pros where they say this is the format that feels like is most the most one of the standard formats most recently that is dependent on uh, the play and the draw. Like it's you know the threats are too too swingy. They they take over the game too rapidly, too immediately. That just being on the plane, having the first Gideon, you know, or being you know like I said, being the one just playing lucky enough. That's one of the things I think that we, uh, a lot of us like about Legacy is that the mana constraints aren't usually there. I mean, you know, there's less, exists. Everyone has the same lose, advantages. Yeah. You won't, less, you won't lose games based on not being able to get the the right mana on your Very rarely, anyways. That's true. Um, unless you're playing, you know, like against Lance or Delver, you know, that sort of thing. And yeah. the decks that do that, that's how, they, you know, that's how they win. The other, the other big thing is that because the answers are so good and so efficient, it, it is hard for just the person who's lucky enough to land the first threat to you know unconditionally take over the game. You know, certain cards like Jace might feel that way, but the fact of the matter is, cards are powerful enough and answers are good enough that you can still kill the Jace and come back. Versus, you know, how, what's what's your win percentage if the, your opponent activates two Gideon gets two Gideon activations before you resolve your Gideon? You know. Yeah, yeah, that is that is big. All right, cool. Let's uh, kill this and we'll get into our main segment. Welcome back, my friends, to our brewing breakdown, in which we will take you through our process on how to successfully brew a deck. We all tinker with brews from time to time as the love of a certain card, concept, or idea is fleeting and can strike at any time. I recently had a scurrilous affair with Red Black Reanimator, really wanting to test out Goblin Welder and not being very excited by the results. However, I judge my decks based on results against top-tier decks, and that might not be what you're looking for when brewing a deck. A lot of people just like to make a deck to play with their friends at FNM. I'm looking at you, deranged hermit elves. I know that most of us on this podcast aspire to make the finals every week, no matter where they go, or actually succeed at said goal. Fuck you, Topher. <laughs> Did you add that, Adam? That was, that was too aggressive. My feelings are hurt. <laughs> Did yeah, I? I, prob- I don't think I added that. I might have. I added the occasional <laughs> thing here. <laughs> uh. Let's get started. I know that when I approach deck building, it's not a rigid process. A lot of it is feelings. And, you know, like I said in the intro, we tried recording about this earlier, but we had to scrap it because we each feel deck building differently and tried miserably so to explain it in our individual terms. So before we get into our steps for deck building, 
Topher has assembled what he calls a dictionary of deck brewing in which we're going to define some of the common terms that we're going to use throughout the podcast and common terms that you're going to hear when talking with other people about brewing just to make sure that we all get it. So Topher, uh, please take it away for your uh, dictionary. Sure. All right. So every competitive deck and really any non-competitive deck too needs to basically break something, do something well. I don't mean that in terms of strategy, like, you know, aggro decks got to turn creatures sideways or mid-range decks got to play big creatures or control decks got to kill creatures. I mean, there are certain things that each competitive deck does that allows it to go over the top that, you know, it's essentially doing something unfair, something, you know, not immediately obvious, not intended that allows it to be a good deck. I personally narrowed it down to four categories. You might think there are more, but hopefully you get the idea. Uh, these guys are fast mana, engine cards, synergy, and just playing good stuff. My thesis is that every deck in Legacy, we'll include Mental Legacy right now, does one or more of these things well. To And you know that is their method of being a good deck. That's their strategy. That's how they do powerful things. So... Definitions. Fast mana, obviously. Uh, it's effects that allow you access to more mana than your land drops would provide. You know, there are a lot of obvious cards that do this. Ancient Tomb, Guy's Cradles, Dark Ritual. They break a fundamental rule of magic. You have more mana than you're supposed to. You can do more powerful things than your opponent can before they can. Obviously, this is something you want. The downsides of fast mana is that it's limiting. You know, Ancient Tomb makes only colorless, Guy's Cradle only makes green mana and requires you to play creatures. And Dark Ritual only makes you black mana, and only once. Uh, so you're limited to the effects you can play with these things. Ancient Tomb and Eldrazi allows you to play the big colorless Eldrazi, but it not allow you to play other good cards like Counterbalance or Nether Reliquary. Dark Ritual forces you to basically play Storm, and Gaia's Cradle forces you to play a lot of small green creatures, which is basically elves, but some people like to play Cheerios, I guess. Uh, second category is engine cards, the cards that turn a deck on. It's generally a single card that makes the rest of the deck better. The engine itself is you know, generally consistent and repeating and ideally gives you some form of card advantage, but it could be some other effect that makes your deck better. Examples of these are, you know, since it's on top of Miracles, which turns on both Counterbalance and the Miracle mechanic, as well as just giving you uh, consistency that a control deck needs. Wirewood Symbiote and Elves allows them to dodge removal and cycle the Elvis Visionary, net some mana, and uh, Life from the Loman Lands. Doesn't really need much explanation there. Uh, engine decks can suffer from playing bad cards because you're looking for something that combos with the engine, basically. And the good engine decks don't do this. They play good magic cards that get busted when you do play the engine. So that's generally where... Uh, the, the brew that was going to break the format with an engine card generally goes south as they find their they don't have the engine their cards are not very good third category is synergy uh i like the term just you know greater than the sum of its parts it's not an engine uh there's no one card that turns on the other 59 cards but everything works together and ideally makes each other better doesn't suffer like the engine decks when it's missing that critical piece but typically, the synergy decks aren't able to overpower other decks by their own, on their own. The cards won't be nearly as bad as the engine decks cards might be if you don't have the engine, but still, they're not as good as 
a trunanemesis or an abrupt decay or a tarmogoyf. Examples of these would be, you know, the burn deck running 30 lightning bolts or Delver running days and wasteland and stifle, all a bunch of mana denial and sheep interaction or death and taxes just running a bunch of creatures that can be played through an aether vial. The last category is just playing good stuff. You know, this is very self-explanatory. It's just playing good magic cards. It makes it t- the the main reason this is good is that your top decks are good. You're on, you, every individual card does something significant, so you're never in a situation where you're trying to you know rip that top deck to get you back in the game. And oh, it's a dark ritual. Oh, it's a virtual arranger. You you know no, it's instead it's a tarmogoyf. It's a true nemesis. It's a terminus. The weakness of good stuff is if your deck is just good stuff then you lack the capacity to go over the top generally. While your cards themselves may be very powerful, you don't get that critical mass of components like an engine deck or a synergy deck would. And you're not going to be as fast as fast mana, obviously. So as good as your turn three true name is, it doesn't beat the turn two thought not seer. It doesn't beat the turn three storm kill. It doesn't beat the turn three glimpse chain. And from a brewing perspective, it's really hard to brew a good stuff deck. They're the most obvious cards. Everyone's already tried them. You're not going to find anything hidden. Ideally, you get the good stuff cards into your synergy or fast manner engine card brew. But It's really um, just straight good stuff decks themselves. They're like playing magic with a sledgehammer. And if you go back and look at the other ones, like synergy or engine, kind of like playing magic with a scalpel. So you're choosing a scalpel versus a sledgehammer. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Yeah. But anyways, those are just some terms I want to go over, and I want to put the thoughts in your guys' head so you know what we're talking about and why we're talking about them. Now that Topher has cut through the mist with his definitions, I feel like we are more well-equipped to talk about our deck building. So when I get started for building a deck, I like to, and this is going to bring out the English nerds in the audience, I like to write a thesis statement for my deck. So examples would be, I want to take advantage of the synergy between Goblin Welder, Hope of Gearapur, and Reanimation Spells. Or I want to play Mono Black, Crypt Breaker, Zombie Tribal Aggro with super cheap zombies. Having a clear idea of where you want to go and what you want to do that can be easily summarized into one sentence is a really good place to start deck building so you know exactly what your goal is and don't stray too far away when you're going through the other steps. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. After step one, we like to move on to step two. Do I want my deck to be competitive? This is really more of a question of what is your goal when building this deck? Do you want to break the format? Do you want to be a meta deck that attacks a certain deck or top two decks? Do you want to make a deck that's a proof of concept? You know, just to say, I want to make make sure or see if Crypt Breaker is playable in a zombie deck. Do you want to just have fun at FNM and use ninjas and ornithopters and attack for two and draw a card and bounce their guys? Yeah, this is fairly basic. Sometimes I'll, you know, be like, oh, you know what I should try is putting four blood moons and elves and then trying to hope I play Peter this, this, you know, this tournament. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, do I want to draw on a brew a deck to take down a tournament, or I just want to shit on the local soldier stompy player? <laughs> yeah. Is your goal to oh, make yeah. Peter sad? Yes or no? <laughs> Always. 
I, I really hope that that soldier stompy anecdote is accurate because I'm imagining you sleeving up a deck with like four it's copies it. of Tabernacle at Pendrel Vale, four copies of Energy Flux, and all right. So he's he's a great guy. I like him, but it is hilarious to hear him complain about like what beats his deck. Like he, this guy, has absolutely shameless with his meta with meta who's at the meditating you know he's like all right this is the week to show up with four main deck containment priests but god forbid you play abrupt decays and tarmogoyce because that's just going too fucking far <laughs> that's true uh i put together uh bug delver and it conveniently uh had all the pieces to get there you know would have thought a uh, timely days and a little abrupt decay would would get there yeah, it's always a problem with, with your only play experience as a local meta. You know, it's you get a little bit of a distorted view of what the larger meta is and what your deck should be able to do if it wants to be competitive. But this also comes back to that main question, though, is are you trying to be competitive on a local level? Are you trying to be competitive at all? Or are you just trying to have fun and stasis lock somebody? I mean, sometimes... Don't you even bad talk me about stasis. Stasis lock little kids. <laughs> Love stasis. <laughs> I love Stasis, and uh, the last time I played Stasis, um, we were playing at this other local shop where there are these, like, 10, 12-year-old kids that would show up, and, you know, there'd be Topher on Miracles, me on Lands, Adam on Elves, and we'd just smoke them every week. Well, there was this one week that they showed up, and I was on Stasis, and I've never seen a kid more just bored and just drained out of his mind as I'm slowly just stasis locking him. <laughs> it's not very nice. Sounds, uh, I mean, that's why some people play magic. Sounds like a riveting experience. Black Vice had just been unbanned. I needed to use it. <laughs> just as I'm sure you needed to pay an overpriced amount for Black Vices. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. Seven yeah. whole dollars per Black Vice. Yeah, there will there I did, probably I, be. I really probably overpaid for that. To, probably back down to like a dollar yeah. fifty now. I remember, yeah. I remember buying my playset of mentors the day they were print, the day they were released for I think a hundred and geez forty bucks for the playset, like thirty five dollars each. I think you probably got your money out of them, huh? But yeah, I mean, I knew, you know, I knew I was overpaying, but whatever it is. Yeah, I was busted. Obviously, I had to get my hands on them. I'm one of those people because I live in Japan. Um, sometimes the stores will have Japanese foils for the same price as English foils, and I'll pick them up. Yeah, probably, probably a good call. Except for when everybody realizes Japan sucks, doesn't want your stinky moon runes cards. <laughs> yeah, moon runes. Talk to, <laughs> talk to me when they win a world war. Um, <laughs> <laughs> technically, uh, technically they're on the winning side. What we want, but back to back world war champions. USA. Um, <laughs> USA. So once you have figured out your goal for the deck, whether it's to break the format or just have a good time, next step you want to take is take a look at some of the broken fast mana available and see if you are looking to build your deck around them. Um, things like Lotus Petal, Spirit Guides, and Rituals um, on one side for the immediate fast mana or the explorations and veteran explorers those will help give you those busted starts while maybe leading into the kind of deck you're looking for the point is is that fast man is a powerful enough effect that you want to see if you can play it it doesn't mean you have to play it but if the if your thesis is simply 
I want to play zombies, that, you know, zombies are black, let's see if Dark Ritual fits. But, you know, if your these statement's a bit more specific, it's like, okay, I want to play a counterlock deck that craps all over actual miracles, then, you know, that, that that's more specific. And you can probably more immediately say, no, there isn't really any fast man I can fit in here. I'm playing a grindy mid-range control deck. I can't afford to have that sort of card disadvantage. But okay. it's still something you need to ask. I also want to make a point that cards like Noble Hierarch and Deathrite Shaman are not fast mana cards. Um, there, there aren't, there isn't a way to usually exploit them outside of them just tapping for mana on turn two, and they're not giving you anything up front usually as far as mana is concerned. They have other reasons they see play the way they do. The closest they get to fast mana would be in a deck like Adam's deck Elves, because he has ways to abuse untapping synergies. But, you know, Deathrite Shaman is basically just a one-mana Planeswalker and other things and is not considered fast mana, even though it does commonly accelerate on turn two or three. It's worth noting that fast mana is in context to your opponent. So, I mean, the reason fast mana is powerful is because it allows you essentially be playing turn three while your opponent's still on turn one. So, like Brooks was saying, something like Double Hire compares a Paradise, while by the strictest definition you could call it fast mana, in the context of magic really and how you break the game with fast mana you can't call it fast mana because it doesn't dramatically put you ahead of your opponent sometimes maybe all you're looking to do is play a two drop in turn three then play the mana dorks because they're the safest option but you know maybe you're not really breaking the game as much as you need to be to make your deck be as powerful as you want it to be so the next question you want to ask yourself is are there any pre-existing or new engines or combos I want to include in my deck? We mentioned this earlier with Fast Mana about whether they that meshes with your theme, but a lot of times these things are separate. They're not mutually exclusive, but a lot of times they are separate concepts. So Topher mentioned briefly what engine cards are in the definition section, and we also have combo cards. So some examples of combo cards would be, say, Helm of Obedience and Leyline of the Void, or Rest in Peace. That's a two-card combo that wins the game. Or Painter Servant plus Grindstone, another two-card combo that wins the game. But as far as engines here, we're looking at Life from the Lone Wasteland as an example. That's a really powerful engine that can lock opponents out of the game. But at the same time, it has this really high synergy with Grove of the Burn Willows and Punishing Fire. You can play them both in the same deck, and there's a lot of overlap there. Same goes with Thespian Stage and Dark Depths. I know Miracles has a lot of good examples of these engine-type cards having a lot of overlap. What are some examples in there, Topher? I think it's important to uh reiterate that engine cards that you could label a lot of differences between engine and combo cards but the main things i think of are engine cards are repeating but combo cards have the immediate payoff so uh so having said that uh in miracles uh you know jason mind sculptor sensitive on top those are engine cards uh you could make the argument that snapcast is an engine card um semantics aside you know, it's a source of repeatable advantage. Uh, whereas the entreat the angels off the top, you know, that's, you know, it's enabled by an engine, but you could art, you could, you know, make the case of that being a combo interaction because you're not, you're not getting that effect again. You know, that's a one-time deal. So you gotta, gotta wait a bit longer to see if this thing's going to work. 
Yeah. Now, I know um, in talking about um, how we all brew decks to get ready for this episode, uh, Peter was talking about uh, this is the first step um, that he takes. Um, he, you know, doesn't usually write a thesis statement. He takes a look at uh, an existing engine and he wants to, you know, tweak or modify it a bit uh, to have create something, you know, interesting and fun. Uh, you want to go into a little more detail on that, Peter? Sure. Uh, typically, when I brew, I, I just look to have fun. If if I do intend to make it more serious, then I'll usually I'll talk to these guys and then try to see what we can do to brew together. Because my biggest thing is when I brew, I usually look at you know, fun new cards that might be spoiled. I look at, you know, and then try to fit them into different decks. Like, um, I know when Thing in the Ice came out, I wanted to just jam Thing in the Ice, and I was thinking, what are some cool ways that I could abuse the bounce ability, the ETB ability, and would jam a bunch of spells. So I thought Shardless Bug would be sweet as a way that Playback Shardless Agent, get more advantage that way, replay your Baleful Strix, get a bunch of ETB abilities, and, you know, leverage the advantage there with pseudo-wraths. It ended up not being great, but it was it was sweet nonetheless. Um, now, the most ubiquitous question that comes up when building decks, especially in Legacy, and if you're using this as a guide for building decks in other formats... I would say this is less relevant, but it probably still is. The question is, should I be playing blue? And the what answer is, is yes. <laughs> probably, I should probably. say. Probably should be playing blue. So what are the advantages to playing blue in Legacy? Brainstorm. Yeah, and Force of Will. <laughs> um, it's consistency. Definitely. Yeah, so not only do you get the consistency of Brainstorm, Ponder, Preordain if you want it, you can also get information like a taxian probe you can get tutoring effects in the form of cunning wish intuition merchant scroll or you can just get protection in the form of force of will or fluster storm sometimes blue can expose your mana base if you're already in two or more colors but that's part of the payoff of blue too is you can more consistently find your mana and the appropriate colors you're looking for i always like to phrase blue as like the the glue that holds your deck together because oftentimes, and uh, blue, the blue cards in a deck are very rarely the power or payoff cards. They're just sort of the cards that you know hold all the pieces together. I mean, Miracles is one of the examples of decks that that isn't the case. Jason Counterbalance, but like in Delver decks, Delver itself is the only blue card that progresses the game plan. Uh, everything else is, like I said, a cantrip or the all-powerful force of will. That's the reason you have to ask yourself this question because it's such a such an enormous advantage to play blue, to having that consistency, to being able to rely on your game plan more because you know you'll be able to find those pieces. Blue is a bit more important in, say, an engine deck or a synergy deck because you can find those important cards. You know, a good stuff deck, maybe you can get away with just continuously top-picking good cards. But then again, the candidates will find those good cards even faster. Fast mana is probably the hardest situation to play blue because there isn't really many fast fast mana effects for blue, and even when they are, blue itself is generally like a. It's hard to use fast mana to cantrip. <laughs> it's such a bad use of your fast mana. The expectations are so high, 
you got two mana on turn one. What are you going to do with that mana? I'm going to brainstorm twice. You know, that's not, <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite yeah. where you want to be. I like where your head's at, though. Yeah. When I think of, I guess, non-blue decks, because of how blue is, how, how powerful the consistency given by blue cards is and, and the substantive protection with, you know, force as well. I think that non-blue decks need something to basically, there needs to be a reward for not playing blue. With elves, it's you can glimpse of nature for, you know, 13 cards in a single turn. From death and taxes, it's you can cheat with aether vial i don't think you even need a a cheaty aspect so much as just a very very high synergies aspect or a very clear game plan that has redundant pieces exactly you need redundancy you're not getting your consistency from actually finding the cards you need so you just need all your cards to do you know basically a similar thing or maybe you just have the the few non-blue cards that do give you consistency you know agrolone plays like 20 five or more lands and then four mox diamonds you know it needs a lot of it needs to be able to churn through those lands you know so it runs stuff like someone library and dark confidant and it even runs cycle lands and life from the loom as well true whereas burn just runs like 30 of the same card you know and death and taxes is, is you know is an example of a deck that's built to kind of you know more aggressively takes advantage of not playing blue by playing effects like thalia and aether i guess yeah, Death of Texas is really good at, at bleeding their synergies into one another. You know, they have this deck that can do mana denial really well and choke your spells. And they also have this deck that's full of really hard-to-address creatures. And their game plan can shift from one to the other. It's very fluid for a non-blue deck. And it can pick which one of those routes is going to be most effective against you while also making you stumble a little bit with the bits they draw so, but, you know, it's still a question you have to ask yourself because blue is that significant. It's such, such a huge part of the legacy meta. You have to, you know, beat him or join him. Cover's drawing a line in the sand here. <laughs> for some, and for some people it is, well, if you want to play a blue deck, the mana, co- the mana base doubles in price, and that's, that's definitely not significant. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to buy, you know, for underground seas so you can splash blue and crypt breaker zombies over uh, the next thing you want to go into uh your deck is how do you make your mana work um, obviously we take a look at um, whoa, whoa, whoa adam i thought that the way you made your mana work was you just paid two thousand dollars and let the internet decide no you just you just run 16 swamps like crypt breaker well, zombies they're all cheap zombies you don't need too many lines yeah, yeah, you only need to cast your one drops. Maybe what? Occasional Jarl's Messenger? That's about it. Occasionally. Yeah. Best best turn point playing Legacy, Dark Ritual Jarl's Messenger. Yeah, make him surgical, that thing. Yes. So, realistically, uh, getting your mana to work efficiently is... It's not, you know, the flashiest part of the deck, um, unless you're, you know, Peter and Brooks, whose mana is their entire deck. But you need to balance you know the color of your spells and what non-colored mana sources you do run whether you're playing a uh, lake of the dead so you can cast uh you know four crypt breakers on turn two or um we're <laughs> <laughs> running wastelands to disrupt the opponent so I'll, I'll give an example for this because this was very relevant when i was desperately trying to make a birthing pod work in legacy 
one, one of the things I quickly realized when I was trying to birthing pod work was that there were a lot of shitty two drops that I would still have to play because I was an engine deck and I had to play bad magic cards to make my deck work, you know, to make the pod chain work at two mana. And in junk, you know, you've got basically ooze, I guess voice resurgence if you really want to. Uh, but there's a lot better blue drop I could play, and that was Baleful Strix. But that mean I had to go into four colors. You forgot Brindleshoat Dog. I'm not going to pretend to know what that is. Uh, but, you know, so, but the problem is going to Baleful Strix means I have to splash a fourth color. Almost like more significantly was I'm splashing blue, and all I'm getting from it is Baleful Strix. It was almost like I needed to play more blue. Uh, if I'm splashing blue for Baleful Strix... It's this slippery Glenn slope Alentra. that goes down into Glenn, slippery slope to Glenendra Archmage and Phantasm then a Phyrexian Metamorph. Well, I, I already have Phyrexian Metamorph. I mean, not I not Metamorph for that. Sorry. The uh, <laughs> then it's a slippery slope to Deceiver Exarch. <laughs> no, I uh, <laughs> I'm already playing too <laughs> many bad magic cards. I was yeah. a very big sacrifice for me playing Baleful Strix. Can you tell me how many times yeah. like like all right, do I play one or two blue sources in this deck? And it's like fuck, I can't. They got wastelanded. He wasted on Underground Seek if he thought it was important. It actually is. Now I can't cast my Bellful Strixes. And this comes into play quite a lot. I mean, I know for me, the optimal build of Elves uh, does not run anything but Fetchlands and Bayous or Fetchlands and Basics. Yet, because of how impactful other cards are in the metagame, like Counterbalance and Chalice of the Void, I have to run. Uh, garbage cavern souls to make everything uncounterable so i can actually resolve them you know you'll see um, each deck uh pretty much every competitive deck in the format can run uh, at least some non-mana producing lands or lands that don't you know tap for colorless and have other effects um, that further their game plans whether you know you guys it's your entire decks maybe it's a academy ruins to get back your ee and in some grindy builds. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Miracles doesn't. Um, you cast all of your spells on curve. Um, you hit the right color mana. Uh, you're, for some reason, more consistent than everybody else. You know, your biggest... Uh, some some builds will run a Caracas. Uh, Joe Lisette runs uh, Coward of Souls. you got to look at what your deck is trying to do yeah, you kind of have to weigh what the format looks like against what you want your mana base to be against how greedy you want to be. You have to take into account all of these factors. Do I want to get blown up by Blood Moon? Do I want to take advantage of fetches with Sensei's Divining Top? How many basics do I want to play? Do I need to have every land be an island because I'm playing days? And it's like a lot, maybe a lot more simply said is, you know, is the reward of the extra color worth the risk of being stuck with an extra color you know is splashing green for just abrupt decay worth the fourth color you know is splashing blue for the billful tricks worth the fourth color is splashing i guess red. only if you're playing leovold right <laughs> is splash is splashing red for the pyroblasts worth worth the third color you know is you know these these are you know obviously very deck specific questions but you know every you know the line has the line has to be drawn somewhere you know so where do you want to draw that line yeah, and that's up to you, the deck builder. And you, you will notice that uh, in Legacy specifically, you can you do get punished when you cross that line. When it's you know when the 
the metagame gets, oh, you know, you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna jam four colors in this control deck. Well, you're gonna you're gonna lose oh. to the the lands deck that's running four wastelands and four ghost quarters, you don't have any basics. You're gonna lose to blood moons. You know, is it great to have a one of tropical island so I can hard cast my Leovold uh, from a fetch land when elves? That's a much harder question. What, you know, what slots does it take up? This ties into our next question. How do my cards line up against the most commonly played cards in the format? So really, this is, is facing the elephant in the room. Uh, it's also kind of relative. Um, if you are playing competitively in leagues on MTGO, make sure you're ready to face Abrupt Decay, True Name Nemesis, and Topher and his Filthy Miracles deck. If you're playing at FNM, it might be a little bit more of an uh, eclectic atmosphere. You get some more casuals. Or you might be playing in 8 Blood Moon Country. So you need to make sure that you tune your deck to play against the cards you're expecting in your format. Like, for example, Topher, I know you've been playing Pyroblast a little bit more recently. Why is that? Well, it is almost like a escalating arms race amongst uh, Miracles and Bug about how many tools we can dig out to beat each other. Uh, I mean, Py Pyroblast, you know, it's, a gr it's fantastic against the two best archetypes at the moment, uh, Bug, well, yeah, Bug and Miracles. And it's, you know, reasonably relevant against most Delver decks. So you got to play it. You know, it's, you cannot be this sacred version that refuses to respond to the meta. You know, you, you got to play some odd cards to, to beat people. And so you're, you're stuck playing four power blasts sometimes. Uh, stuck. Splashing green for Abrupt Decay, because if you don't, you can't beat Miracles. You're stuck playing those two basics so you don't get blown up by Waste and a Blood Moon. It's just sacrifices in deck building sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there are risks, but there are, there are calculated risks, because the idea is more often than not, they will be the deciding factor in what wins the game, as opposed to flat out losing it. Yeah, and then, you know, sometimes you just, you're willing to roll the dice, you know? You're willing to take that you know, let, let's just say not playing Abrupt Decay means you lose to Miracles an extra 25% of the time. But by not running Abrupt Decay, you don't put in that fourth color. So you lose that much less to Wasteland now in Blood Moon. And you decide it's, it's kind, worth it. It's kind of like if you're building a mono-blue Painter Servant deck, then you probably aren't going to line up very well against the current meta. You have to be aware of what you're good against and what you're going to be bad against. Now, I know um, that this particular rule is the one that I usually start out with when I am approaching a brew. The last brew I had any success with is a Mardu Monastery Mentor deck um, that I brewed in Modern, top-aided a couple of PPTQs and GPTs, had a lot of fun with the cards. But uh, what got me into that specific archetype was taking a look at my expected metagame, which at the time was the best decks were Infect and Affinity and the older Death Shadow aggro, Suicide Zoo. Um, you know, it was a little bit before the banning, uh, about six months before the banning, and a lot of decks were going tall with like one creature, whether it be, you know, just the Infect guy with Hexproof. Uh, I decided that I wanted to play Crackling Doom 
uh, in my deck, um, which is a huge blowout against a lot of those decks. And Sorry about your death shadow, bro. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, the deck has evolved to not be running three Crackling Dooms in the sideboard, or <laughs> at one point, one Crackling Doom in the main deck. And instead, you know, is now just a more of a good stuff, you know, well, I'm going to, you know, run all this Mardu color removal. Um, so if you take a look at what you want to beat, and I knew that if I was going to go to a PBTQ this weekend, I was going to play Infect twice and Death Shadow twice. And maybe two more rounds that I could afford to lose and still make top eight. So I made the conscious decision to build a uh, deck that might not have been good against the entire field, but was very good against uh, what I expected to be a large part of the metagame. So again, um, you know, you can, this list list isn't follow these steps and you'll, and you'll have a brew. It's, you know, which of these steps do you look at first? I know, you know, I look at one first and move from there. Peter looks at something else and moves from there. Some other people might decide to look at some payoff cards and move from there. And all of them you're going to have to look at one point or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So the next question is, do I have cards that can pressure or contort my opponent's plays in a way that is progressive towards my endgame goals? Now, ending the game is important, as many decks can draw out of bad situations because they play high-impact cards, or can find the outs they need thanks to cantriping. It might be sweet to want to play a Gideon ally of Zendikar, but how fast is it going to end the game? Furthermore, how does it line up against the format at large? Now, how is your Cryptbreaker deck going to reach and kill the opponent? You know, will I be able to push through damage faster than my opponent while killing us both with Shepherd of Rot? And you know? answer is it doesn't work. <laughs> that's what I <laughs> But that's a really important aspect of a deck. I know that elves can sometimes suffer from that. You know, it can't contort the opponent's plays as much as you want it to. And a lot of times just attacking with creatures isn't enough pressure. You want to have those over-the-top starts, but sometimes get stalled. Yeah, uh, to some extent. Um, <laughs> no, it's a bad idea. You're straight wrong, Brooks. I don't know where it leads. I don't. I don't have anywhere. To I, I I get what you're saying. I mean, legacy is a sort of format where everyone is doing powerful things, and you're you can't count on being the most powerful deck. You've got to run. You got to do something to mess with your opponent while doing your own stuff. And so, yeah, you know, do you think your deck is just straight fast and powerful enough that you just want to zero in on your gameplay and ignore everyone else? You know, or are you know, are you Belcher? Or do you think that maybe you do need to mess with your opponent a bit while progressing your own game plan? Or do you want messing with your opponent to do your only game plan? You know, a lot of... Cabal Therapy is like... I got a sauce off for Cabal Therapy. Every brew I come, come up with, it's like, is Cabal Therapy working here? Can I run Cabal Therapy? Well, I don't, I don't know if I can or cannot, but we're going to put in four and see if it works. You're a man after my own heart with that Cabal Therapy line, man. And, you know, that's, that's acknowledgement that I cannot... When I brew, the reason I brew is because I want to be... You know, that guy who comes up with the next Summer Bloom deck. You know, Summer Bloom, all the cards for Summer Bloom existed for a while before people put all the pieces together. You know, I'd like to be the person that figures that out next. Or, you know, break that card that I've had a soft spot for that no one else has managed it yet. And so I know going in, I need to run Disruption. I want to be competitive. And I'm not the type of person to make Belcher 2.0, so I can't count on just ignoring my opponent and hoping they can't stop me. So, you know, I, I know I got to run Cabal Therapy or Force of Will or 
Thalia, you know, something, whatever, whatever piece of hate or destruction most seamlessly meshes with my own game plan. You know, am I trying to run a Baleful Strix Snapcaster deck? Then Cabal Therapy, go for it. You know, am I running a, trying to do some sort of new tempo brew and Four Souls the best? Am I trying to just run a big creature beatdown deck? Then Thalia works the best. Uh, but you gotta, you gotta decide if you want to play Disruption, which nine times out of ten, the answer is yes. And then if so, what disruption, like I've said, like we've said a bunch of times by now, which disruption fits the best into your deck? Which disruption makes you the most moist? That too. It's, uh, yeah. Like, uh, like and you, the answer you, is always Cabal Therapy. <laughs> yeah. That is true. Uh, now, you, what, what you were saying with elves, um, there are, if you take a look at what the most powerful shell for elves is, there is a good chance that it is mono green and runs Llanowar Elves because you can run out of fetches in the graveyard or be disrupted by opponents' death right shamans. However, because there are decks in the format that also use death right shaman or use their graveyard in powerful ways, uh, the other two abilities are, you know, incredibly important. So in that case, you know, you never really play, you know, the most individually powerful combo. Um, you're not looking at, you know, Belcher doesn't see very much high-level play, but Ad Nauseam Tendrils, which runs Duress and Cabal Therapy, as protection, does. So that's, uh, like Topher would say, you have to keep other people in mind. You're not just goldfish. Yeah. Elves doesn't play black because it loves playing Thoughtseize out of the board <clears throat> because other decks are yeah. faster and it has to stop them. <laughs> yes, and uh, I mean, and you do get some added reach with Deathrite Shaman. That's... But you'd much rather turn Priest of Titania if you could. <laughs> Ruffellos. <laughs> that too. <laughs> now, the, the last question of deck building here that we have is, should I include any payoff cards? These are sometimes referred to as haymakers or high-impact cards. And almost all decks have some kind of big payoff card. This is usually just a card with a high raw power level. Can you guys give me some examples of these types of cards in your decks? Treat the angels. Yeah, and uh, natural order. What about some other examples in uh, popular decks? Like, uh, say, Ad Nauseam and Storm. Yeah. Sessual Visions and Shardless Bug. Um, yeah, they're generally cards that are just so powerful that when you cast them, you have a much better chance of winning the game. And Gideon and Standard would be a great example as well. And, you know, it's worth saying, you know, why you need to run these. You know, unless you are running the most seamless machine in the world, it's just like the peak of synergy. You know, at some point your opponent is going to mess with you. They're going to stop what you're doing. You're going to stumble. You have to get back on track. And you're going to have to come from behind occasionally. When Delver was initially, you know, when when... Canadian Threshold became Rug Delver, you know, it didn't run really any come-from-behind cards. But its entire game plan was focused on the don't let the game get beyond turn two, you know. Keep, you know, don't give your opponent, to, opponent the opportunity to ever go ahead. And so, because that's how Rug Delver was built, they never had to play any come-from-behind cards. But the metas evolved, they're stronger, hate, there's, you know, decks are a bit more robust, harder for Delver to hate out. Delver had to evolve, you know, has to play more comfortable behind cards. Recently, I've seen, you know, the four-color Delver lists running, like, two to three Snapcaster Mages, you know, and that's, you know, draw Snapcaster Mages, a, you know, 
amazing magic card, one of the best in the game. It is not a <laughs> traditional Delver card, but you know it does sort of fit to Delver shell, and more specifically, it allows him to come from behind. It allows him to get the beater on board and grind through some removal because it replaces itself, you know. Or they play the Grimoire Angler, you know, the one that they can't traditionally get out early, but. Guess what? It dodges some removal. It's bigger than most creatures. It allows them to come from behind. It allows them to beat the onboard four or five goyf if they can't lightning bolt. And it even shrinks the goyf. It even shrinks the goyf. Even better. Even better. I didn't even think of that. Now, uh, some decks just rely, like you're saying, on strong, strong synergies um, or are single-mindedly devoted to a combo. These would include like lands, which is like just synergy and combo blended together. Death and Taxes, which is synergy and, and the theme of the small creatures and the taxing effects. Maverick has just a totally flat power level. It's just like I'm playing two drops and three drops and trying to play them ahead of curve. Um, Red Stompy, another flat power level deck, which just goes to play a Blood Moon out on turn one or turn two and then just beat you with big stupid guys. Or Turbo Depths, you guessed it, just straight, pure, unadulterated combo. I'll give another example of, you know, needing to play from behind. Um, as you expect, as a control deck, Miracles is generally on the back foot until they get on the front foot, and then they tend to not give it up. But, you know, if you play the deck, you realize that it's a lot... Uh, it's kind of hard to come from behind if you don't have the high-impact cards to come from behind with. You know, Terminus is one of those cards, but if you never actually end the game, uh, you're going to be in some trouble. And that's, you know, in a perfect world, Miracles would just play... Four counterbalance, four counter spells, four snapcasters, and eventually kill you with a two-one. You know, their decks can mess with what we're doing, so we need to play some come from behind, some better come from behind cards. You know, that's why stuff like Entreat the Angels and Monastery Mentor are necessary because you know we don't live in perfect perfect magical Christmas land. We are not gonna be able to counterspell every single thing your opponent does. We're going to fall we're going to fall behind. This, and, this uh, is a magic Christmas why. land for a Miracles player. Because everything <laughs> gets countered. And you win with Snapcasters every time. <laughs> I remember. I remember getting into an argument with the dude. Uh, I, I, won't, I won't say names because he moved fast this point. He understands the follies. But he was trying. The only win cons in his 75 that he wanted to run were four Snapcasters and two Jaces. And I kept telling him it was bad. But eventually I tried it out for myself. The very first match I played with Death and Taxes. And I could not beat it. It, I, it's like I've like blacked it out, but it was just straight and impossible. And you know, that's because you can't control everything a deck like Death and Taxes does. You have to sometimes just have something they can't answer and end the game before they finally grind through all your hate because you keep recycling their threats for them or they actually run. If every Snapcaster is flashing back a store of supply with shares, you're still only removing eight creatures from the game. They're going to get through it. You know, you need to end the game. So the point is, you know, a deck like Miracles is a good example of a deck that has to run these high-impact cards because these high-impact cards allow you to come from behind. So unless your brew is built to be on the front foot from turn one and never give it up, you also need these cards. That's an excellent summary. I think the other question, too, about these high-impact cards, do you want any free win cards? And when I say free win cards, I mean just something that just wins like on the spot. If I'm playing El Colorless Eldrazi, for example, I'm siding in four Leyline of the Voids against you. Do I maybe also want a couple Helm of Obediences? That kind of deal. If you look at, say, I'll take Enchantress, like what you said, the, the Helm win condition. Helm and Rest in Peace or Helm and Leyline. These cards are a win condition, 
but they also fit in your deck. Like in, they fit Enchantress because they, you know, draw you three cards when you cast it. Um, but in addition to winning you the game because it's part of a combo, it also, you cast it turn two against Dredge, remove their graveyard, and they have no way to deal with it. You're never going to lose the game. So um, it may not be, you know, the best possible win condition for the deck, but it completely invalidates your opponent's strategy. It's it's very much like a numbers crunching thing. You basically have to say, all right, I'm running, for some reason, I'm playing a deck that's main boarding rest in pieces. What would I have to cut to run these helms? And would the free wins I get from this combo be more often than the matchups I lose because I cut those two cards? You know, ideally your goal is to win games of magic. So if your brew has you run, say, Splinter Twin because you want to get maximum value off of Moldrifter, then, you know, you got to consider, well, what if I just slot in four Deceivers? And, you know, is that worth, does that give me more wins than the four whatever nonsense you're running that got cut would give me? Dude, just put a Snapcaster with a Splinter Twin. That's best friends forever right there. That was, I can't tell how many times, like, Christ, I got three Splinter Twins and, you know, one Deceiver, but he's not tapping out of removal man. And well, let's just start <laughs> throwing them on the Snapcaster and see what he does. I it remember often, it worked more often than not. I remember there was a period of time uh, right around Grand Prix, uh, New Jersey, where I saw a slight uptick in miracles with the Helm Wind condition, or not really the Helm Wind condition. They, they ran like the, the rest of energy the field. field. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because conveniently it you know won the game when you had the combo, it but it also <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, shut me right out uh pre-board but um it also you know casting rest in peace against or you know energy field on its own against um blue red delver which was the big deck at the time completely invalidated their play a bunch of weak spells only weaker spells and then guess what now i get to cast treasure cruise now they have to thought now they have you. To, yeah <laughs> so um there are certain, you know, like, you know, Brooke said, percentages that can give you free wins. <laughs> well, do you want to run them? Uh, yeah, the, the big thing is, you know, you, you don't want to just be randomly j- jamming the Splinter Twin combo into your Delver deck. But, you know, you want to see, you know, if you happen to be running one of these cards or you're in the colors enough, you know, how much are you giving up by running them? Because while... We've been talking about, you know, all the synergy and the interaction, you know, amongst your deck's pieces, you know, the one card engine, the combo, the synergy, the good stuff deck with the consistent mana base. You know, you can have like a standalone piece in your deck that is just kind of there. You know, there have been a lot of successful decks in Magic's history that just you could argue are essentially two decks jammed in one. You know, and they managed two to find card a, Monty is what we call they it. Managed just, a, just enough overlapping pieces or. You know, even if it's just that they're in fact they're in the same colors, or you can play them by with mana. You know, it's you know if it wins you a game of Magic, then it's worth considering. Yeah, play such as the good old Flash Hulk decks that also ran Counterbalance Top. I remember hearing this is this is extended, but uh, there's a point where there was a I don't know what the deck was called, but it had the Hex Mage Depths combo. Thopter plus the Thopter Depths was the deck. The, it was yeah. innovated by Jerry Thompson, and and it had the Vampire Hex Mage plus Dark Depths combo overlapping with the 
Thopter found combo. sort of a combo. And the way it threaded the needle was that it used muddle the mixture, the instant that transmutes for two to go tutor up vampire hex mage for their dark depths, or tutor up the missing half of the Thopter depths combo. It also played Urborg and Thoughtseize and Chrome Mox, so it could get their pieces out as early as turn one. Some games you would just open turn one Urborg Thoughtseize, turn two Dark Depths Hex Mage Pass. Hope you got a path to exile. I like that. Yeah, it was pretty delightful. Anywho, that just about summarizes our thoughts on how to build a deck. If you follow all these steps all the way through to their conclusion, you will be at a point of you probably have a list, you have an idea, and you know what you're putting in there. And 99% a, of the time, it's going to be junk. <laughs> you mean blue not. cards, right? <laughs> yes. Brewing a deck's not easy. Um, mm-hmm. and, well, somebody uh, else would have already done it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if your deck loses 15 straight games to miracles, you know, don't be, don't be discouraged. Um, <laughs> you know, there there are right now probably 500 people at their computers trying to figure out the new spicy tech for miracles. Uh, yeah. And there's just you working on Crypt Breaker zombies to her. <clears throat> yeah. Brewing is... Um, I'm already brewing, done with that. <laughs> brewing is a, is a process of determination and perseverance. Nine times out of ten, maybe more than that even, you're going to fall flat on your face. And it's about getting back up and trying again and learning from the brewing process and testing process. What can I take away from this that's positive for me? What did I learn about this synergy or interaction with cards that could carry me forward? What can I adapt into pre-existing decks or something brand new to help against the meta? I know for me, like in lands, I keep testing all these different sideboard options because we have some flex slots. And I've learned through testing that I think Hoselux Return has become a lock card in the land sideboard because it can completely turn around matches and interacts with the board in a very positive way against stuff like death and taxes. So only through that iteration process, you know, I tested a million things before that I tested, I tested stuff like anger of the gods. I tested pyroclasm. I tested pyrite spell bomb in one version. I tested, uh, tested sudden demise. I tested a whole bunch of slots I didn't even bother with it at some point, but Kozilek's Return ended up settling for me as being the card I wanted there, and that was only determined through testing and testing and testing and some more testing and testing and testing and testing. So the point is, test as much as you're comfortable with and brew if that's the thing you like to do because there's always, always, always something positive to be gained from brewing new decks whether that is a new piece of technology whether it's having fun at fnm whether it's playing eight blood moon dot deck just because you think you're going to play peter that night if you look at the metagame right now it's certainly going to change in the next three months and it's going to be because someone decided to innovate uh, i can remember an argument like two years ago about um whether elves should mainboard reclamation save, which if you look at the past two years, yes, you should. Um, but at the time, no one had done it, and no one was doing it, and then someone did it, and it was great. Um, and then the rest was, is I, yeah. I remember when uh, the 
Facebook Miracles chat was first getting introduced to the idea of predict. You know, I remember. Uh, Christ, I know everyone by their moto name. Uh, I remember when Truckus was trying to convince people, and I was having none of that. And eventually, because uh, I did not want to cut, I got no clue what I was running the slots to predict. Now I was probably running, let's see, Counterspell, probably some other mentors. You know, I just didn't want to make the cuts. You get attached to the cards you play, but uh, you know, he was he was persistent. So eventually, I tried it out and. A year and a half later, you know, I've got every top inning miracles list running three to four predicts. So he was right. Yeah, so we can all thank him for the degeneracy that is predict. <laughs> you sons yeah, of bitches. You, you can all thank players. him for, for Bug no longer being the anti-miracles deck. That all being said, we are going to move on to our super secret tech of the week. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back. Every single week, it is our solemn duty to share with you our super secret tech of the week, in which we take a close look at a piece of technology for magic. This week, we're going to be going through the tournament tip route. Over the weekend, I went to Grand Prix Shizuoka, and I always pride myself as being the dad of the group. I will always pack in my bag things to help the group succeed and emergency items. And I wanted to go over with you a little bit of tournament preparation, what you should bring, what you should expect, and how to keep yourself on your A-game for the tournaments. The first thing I look at is how I'm packing my bag. I always make sure that I have room for a water bottle. Very important over the course of a day. I always make sure I have room for a couple snacks. This includes a protein bar or two and some lean snacking, whether that be uh, well, lean or uh, low sugar snacking, whether that means a you know, bag of flavored peanuts, some beef jerky, just something to keep the salt content a little bit higher because a lot of times you don't eat well during a tournament. Other things that I will bring, I'll bring a little container of medication. Uh, normally, this will include two types of headache medication. Uh, ibuprofen for when you're trying to sleep that night and Excedrin for in the middle of the tournament for caffeine content. I also bring, you know, Harper medication, uh, anti-diarrheal stuff. It's all really, really helpful because you never know when a case of the Hershey squirts is going to strike. Um, <laughs> uh, to play off that, uh, I think it's always important for Peter and I to bring a nice uh, fat joint to every tournament. So we have <laughs> some... <laughs> Some way to kill time when we didn't top eight and have to wait three hours for Topher to slog his way through the finals. Uh, you got to do something. You can't spend all your money on magic cards. Sorry, you guys. We're, we're for the first two freaking rounds of the top eight. <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> it doesn't take that long to start the bowl, man. It legit took them. Like, they didn't like show up to like the top eight until it was like, halfway through round two. I just imagine they were all the quest for monkeys. <laughs> Um, it's, so, it's hard work scrubbing out. You gotta re-energize. Other things that I carry to these events with me are a little bit more eclectic items, uh, but do actually end up mattering pretty often. I carry some eyeglass wipes, some wet wipes, as well as a dry eyeglass cloth. The wipes are specifically good for your eyeglasses. The cloth uh, is microfiber and can be used for not just cleaning eyeglasses, but also if you get like some smears or smudges on your cards, they can it can clean off the sleeves really nicely as well. Other things I like to bring are I will bring a small pair of nail clippers because you never know when you might get a hangnail. 
a hair tie uh, for all the long-haired people in your group. I mean, I'm married, so that means that hair ties are everywhere around my house, and it doesn't hurt to keep one with you at all the time. If you are a guy or even a gal, just keep a hair tie on your keychain, and you will be somebody's hero someday. I also generally, for the single guys at Magic Tournaments, I don't know how often this comes up for you lot, but I will bring a condom, even though I am married, so <laughs> the single guys can wrap it up before they tap it. I've Who had are they to use... tapping in a Magic uh, Tournament? There's like three girls total at this thing. <laughs> uh, I know. I, I, I know. I, I know. I usually get. I usually say I get fucked by miracles, but I don't mean like that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one um, one uh, underrated thing that I've noticed that a lot of people don't run, but I wouldn't be caught dead without, is I uh, usually bring an extra roll of toilet paper to the event. Uh, as long as if it's a big event, I'm not going to bring in an extra roll to FNM. But when you get um, <laughs> That's a lot of backspace, <laughs> yeah, when you um, when you get two thousand guys in a hall. And they're all sharing the same bathroom stalls, and there's only 14 bathroom stalls. At right around 4:30, there is always a chance that you go into the restroom and find yourself um, really glad you can stick your hand in your bag and pull out a nice fresh roll of toilet. You know, I was I was not going to mention the fact that I also bring uh, single-use wet wipes for the toilet in uh, this segment, but you know what? Bring some ass wipes. And I'm not talking Preparation H. Unless you're having some hemorrhoids, then definitely bring the Preparation H single-serve wipes. But oh, so you're bringing the equivalent of an adult diaper bag to these <laughs> tournaments? <laughs> well, our, our Magic player is nothing more than giant children anyways. That's fair. Speaking <laughs> yeah. of um, very seriously. <laughs> now, outside of like just preparation for making sure that you're in good health and good spirits for this event, I always will also bring a jeweler's loop. And I highly recommend every Magic player owns one of these items. They're about 5 to $8 on Amazon. You can bring them with you, and they're the best way to protect yourself from counterfeit cards. Buy a jeweler's loop, put it in your bag. It takes up no space, and it could save your ass someday when you're looking to buy your Volcanic Island for your blue-red Delver deck and don't want to get ripped off. Anywho, that is the super secret tech for the week, is how to stock your bag for an event. We'll be right back in just a minute to wrap up the cast with the audience trivia question. <music> Lastly, we'd like to wrap up with an audience trivia question. Our question last week was, what is the only land cycle in Magic that is not five cards? The answer is the Tainted Cycle from Torment where each land taps for colorless, but will only tap for a mana of two colors if you also control a swamp. Congratulations to Martin M., who is this week's trivia winner. We will be emailing you shortly to get your address so we can send you your draft set. Now, on to this week's trivia question. Which card had different artwork in Alpha Beta Unlimited than it did in Revised? If you know the correct answer to this week's trivia question, shoot us a line at sstmtgcast at gmail.com. That's sstmtgcast at gmail.com. We will randomly select a winner from all of this week's correct answers to receive a draft set of Aether Revolt and Kaladesh. You can find the show on Twitter at SuperSecretMTG. You can also find me on MTGO and Twitter at OneWithNothing. You can also check me out on Twitch 
at one underscore with underscore nothing. As every Wednesday at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, I stream the Community Legacy League, which is four rounds of hot and spicy legacy action with me playing Red Green Lands. You can find Adam on MTGO at a bomb diggity, Topher on MTGO crushing scrubs and up to his 21st trophy in Legacy Leagues at MZ Frost, and Peter on MTGO at Brains478. Any questions, comments, concerns, tips, tricks, or the trivia answer for today's cast can be emailed to the same email address I mentioned earlier, which is sstmtgcast at gmail.com. On behalf of myself, Adam, Topher, and Peter, thank you so, so much for listening. We will catch you next week.